0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you, virtual audience. This is Brad's 18th thriller, and he has been with us for every single one. So I'm really pleased about that. Let's give him a round of applause for showing up. (laughs) And he used to do them, if you remember, twice a year, which was, wow. You you know, only only a strong guy like you had enough stamina to actually do that. Except for four years, and then I was like, no more. Can't I know, but up. it was great for us because we got to see you more often. Yeah. I know. But one of them was in June, which was never kind. Right. Right. So I think that this book, Dead Man's Hand, which has a beautiful cover, and if you notice it, it's embossed, so it has this gorgeous skull, was a really, really gutsy book for Brad to write now. Why did right. I say that?
1: Yeah, because I, I don't ever write about uh, current events because they're current. I mean, anything can go sideways, and the book is absolutely worthless. And I actually, um, I, when I came up with the framework, what I was going to write about, I actually emailed my editor and said, I've got three risks of this book. I'll let you know right up front that this book could be worthless uh, if three things happen. Number one, um, the war in Ukraine ends. If the, you know, Russia runs over them or Ukraine pushes them out or whatever, how they sue for peace? If the war is over, then the, you know nobody wants to read about a war that's over. Um, I said, that's a low risk. I don't think it's going to happen. I've been doing a lot of research on it, and I was like, I think it's going to be basically a stalemate, which is what it is. Uh, But it was a risk. And the second was uh, um, Sweden and Finland. This is kind of a side plot. Sweden and Finland are trying to join NATO. And I said the odds are that they were doing it as a a buddy team, that you're getting both of us or none of us. That's how it's going to work. We're both going in or neither one of us are going in. And Turkey had a problem with Sweden, nothing, didn't care about Finland, but Finland was like, we're not going unless they're going, thinking that was some kind of leverage. I said that they, should, they might get into to, uh, NATO before the book gets published. Uh, I said it's going to be a close-run thing. Well, then Finland, because it's current events, they said, ah, screw this buddy thing. I'm joining NATO. And I'm like, rass frass and rewrite, 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 rewrite. <laughs> so they made it into NATO, and I told my publisher, Sweden may or may not get in there. And my book came out on midnight on Thursday, or on Tuesday, and uh, they voted at 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Tuesday. I beat them. <laughs> and then Erdogan just did it on Thursday. He approved it. And then Friday, of course, we said we're selling the F-16s. Uh, the final one was Putin. I said, you know, something could happen to Putin. Um, he's, uh, uh, you know, if he falls out of a window, drinks some plutonium-laced tea or something, if he goes, then, uh, uh, you know, obviously the books, the whole plot of the book's shattered. And I said that's not going to happen. He's a strong man. He's uh, KGB. He's a survivor. I think that's a really low risk. And I turned the book in. And in June, Wagner and Prigozhin crossed the border, heading into Moscow. And I'm like, "There's a coup going on? Seriously?" Uh, so it all worked out, but it's, it was oh, a wait lot. a minute, it didn't
0: actually work out well for Wagner and
1: no, and Leo I got to,
0: and I
1: said what I thought was going to happen with that. This is a side note, not about the book, but I said, yeah. you know, he's dead man walking. That's what's going to happen. I did it. A uh, uh, couple of uh, um, interviews and things like that, and I got emails. I mean, from uh, so, uh, South Africa, Australia. They're all saying I'm an idiot. Bosnia, you don't know what you're talking about. Pregosan's there forever. And I'm like, you know, two months later, I'm like, well, he took a long walk out of a plane, so I think I was right on that one.
0: Why do you why do you think that he actually just gave up? I mean, I've often wondered since he clearly was going to be a dead man walking. Why did he just keep going?
1: Well, I actually think that, uh, and I.
0: I know this don't has nothing wrong. to do with the book. Sorry, but I just don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I can question. sound like
1: an expert, but I'm not an expert on Russia. But I do think that uh, what happened was uh, it is kind of a mafia-type organization all around there with all the oligarchs and things like that. And uh, I think, because on the surface, it looks like to me there's a street gang that's trying to take on one of the five families, and that's just not going to work. You're going to get crushed. And uh, I think he had. One of the other five families on his side, I think there's somebody on the inside of of Moscow that was saying, we want you to do this. We want you to do this. I'm backing you. I'm backing you. And then Putin found out about that. And it was like, oh, I'm not backing. him. That wasn't me. I'm not backing him. And then when he was riding into Moscow, he found out that all the promises, this is just me speculating, all the promises that uh, he'd been told when he comes running in because he's have all the support from these other people, Disappeared, And he was like, ooh, I'm out here all and by myself. Too,
0: and it's too late then. Yeah, well, yeah. that's why he was
1: like, oh, I was just kind of kidding. That's why he started saying I'm not going against Putin. It wasn't about Putin ever. You know, I'm, I'm going to Belarus. So, you know, it's great. And I was like, too late, man. You're dead.
0: Okay, there's your military analysis. But, you know, I am. Uh I did think it was bizarre, and that does yeah. make the most sense that he expected more support than he actually got. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, he was, he's been friends with Putin forever. It's not like he's a neophyte. He knows what Putin does, so he had to have somebody behind him where he thought he was going to succeed. He's not stupid. He's worked that area forever.
0: And what, what you know, let's take it one step further. What do you think he would do if he'd actually succeeded?
1: I don't think he would have succeeded. I think eventually Putin would have, you know, crushed him militarily. I mean, Putin still had the uh, monopoly of violence. If people are talking about Wagner's. They're all battle-trained, battle-hardened Wagner mercenaries. Okay, well, they don't have helicopters, rockets, F-16s or whatever their version is, Frogfoot foot fighters. They don't have any of that. Artillery, they had some armor, but that's about it. They just didn't have the monopoly of violence, and there's no way they're going to take over Putin. He just, and also they had Karadzic was uh, um, the Chechen. He's got his own army, was in the south. He's driving north. I mean, he's a staunch Putin ally. He'd have just said he'd have gone and hit him. There was, there was no way he was going to be able to do that without somebody helping him out. And it turns out that you're right. Your analysis yeah. turned out that way. Yeah. So but that was a good thing about that is I did not use Wagner in the book. N- in the book, right. Because I'd already used him. I'd done a lot of research in Wagner. I, they were in um, Daughter of War and uh, um, Hunter Killer. So back before they made the news, and so when I was writing this book, I'm like, I'm not using Wagner again because now they're famous and it's not any fun. I've already used them twice, <laughs> and luckily I did that because <laughs> I really would have had to rewrite because they got wiped off the face of the earth. So I used the National Guard, in 2016, Putin came up with the National Guard, which is not like our National Guard. It's not like hurricane relief or anything like that. Their military, the GRU, Spets, Naz and all those guys still work through a chain of command. Um, just kind of like we do. There's a Pentagon, there's generals and all that. And Putin wanted his thumb on some organization that he can just tell them what to do. And so he invented the National Guard. And they have one in every oblast in Russia, uh, Kaliningrad. They're all over the place. And they have Spetsnaz guys like that, but he gets directly control of them. And the commander of, that, of the overarching National Guard was Putin's personal security detail protectee. He was the, in charge of the PSD for Putin, real loyalist guy. Uh, and so that's what I used. And I had uh, uh, I used Putin's name throughout the book. I kept waiting for my publisher to say change his name to Uden <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Never said a word. And I also used the head of the National Guard. He's a real guy. He used to be Putin's personal security detail guy. And I used his real name. And my publisher said um, you got to change that name. That's a real person. You got to you can't you've got to change that name that to Putin's something else. That's not a real person. Well, that's what I was like. You know, Putin's real, right? (laughs) They made me change Putin. I don't know why. They made me change that name, but not Putin. Fascinating. Yeah.
0: I love it. Right. So you talk about chain of command. One thing I thought was interesting in this book is that there's a fair amount of discussion with the task force and other people um, about what the task force actual chain of command is, what it is, can they do, and can't they do. I don't remember that there was quite that much discussion in earlier books. Why did? Why is it important in this book?
1: Uh, it's important in this book because, number one, Pike doesn't want the mission. He's like, right. that's not what I want to do. And number two, he, it's always easier to be the guy that, you know, s- argues against the command until you realize the command's not actually doing what they're supposed to do. And then you've got to stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not right. If the command had said, I was doing this, you'd say, damn that command. That's not, they, they don't know what they're talking about. And then when they do go off, and do something wrong, you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Now I'm going to be have to be the good guy and say that you're not allowed to do that? Because it, the task force I created out of whole cloth, it's not It's not real. You guys have probably heard me say that before. I didn't want anybody to say that I was right about classified organizations that I'd served in and just changed the names for fiction. So I made something out of whole cloth that if you served in that world, you'd say, we don't have that. That's, that's not real. But having served in that world, I knew that there would be some kind of control over it. They would have left and right limits. There would be Things like they, uh, they had a charter that I actually created of you, we're not going to duplicate the NSA, we're not going to duplicate the CIA, we've got those organizations, this is what these guys do, here's the left and right limits. Not allowed to collect uh, um, you know, cell phone data, that's NSA, you're not allowed to do traditional intelligence, that's CIA, all that kind of stuff. And they have an oversight council that has to vote on every phase of the operation. And in this book, it's just the uh, um, head of the CIA and a president just basically saying we're not – and there are always
0: budgetary issues, right? I mean, at some point, the task force guys need to be paid.
1: Yeah, well, They're
0: not each personally wealthy. Yeah, but money's no object of the task force. Right. So that's
1: what <laughs> <I always laughs> Nonetheless, <I> it <laughs>
0: has to come from some, you know, self-pocket. <laughs> right, whatever it all is. No, I, 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 you know, it's certainly true, reading the book, that Pike doesn't really want to be doing the mission, which Brad can describe to you in a minute. And, you know, he uses that um Real, you know, yes. jurisdictional thing, to
1: Because he's always wanting to get away with the jurisdiction stuff and say, I shouldn't have to follow that. That's stupid. There's a bad guy there. I want right. to do this. And now he's like, wait a minute. Aren't I you know. supposed to all be voting on this?
0: No, it was. I thought it was an interesting change yeah. up. You know, I like that. So why don't you give us your short version or long version, as you wish, of <laughs> the plot, and then we'll talk about some fun stuff. Yeah,
1: so I, um, I was doing research on uh, the war in Ukraine with Russia, um, not because I was writing a novel, just because I still do security consulting and I was just wanting to stay on top of it. And one of the big things that everybody was worried about and still is, still talks about, is uh, when are we going to hit a red line with uh, Russia or are they gonna, we're going to get a nuclear war? I mean, Elon Musk is pulling his hair out. Yeah, we're all going to die in nuclear war. Um, and so I was like, what are these trip lines? And one of the things I found, uh, which I didn't realize existed, was this thing called a perimeter system, uh, which is from the old USSR back in the Soviet days. And it was a uh, um, competition uh, or against our own SDI initiative. So in the 80s, Reagan had strategic defense initiative, Star Wars, which we bragged about. We could knock out any missile that enters our airspace. We'll be able to shoot it down with this Star Wars system. It never came to fruition. We never had anything close to that. But we bragged about it, and it scared Russia to death um, because at that time in the 80s, the deterrence mechanism at that time was MAD, mutually assured destruction. I'm not going to go to war because by in so doing, we'll both be wiped out. There's no winner here. We're both going to get annihilated. And Russia said uh, if these guys believe they can knock out every missile we shoot at them, that increases their uh, ability or their uh, probability of doing a first strike because it's no longer MAD. They think they can knock them all out and it's just us it's dying. And they couldn't compete with us in space, so they made the perimeter system, which was called the Dead Hand in the West by NATO, for reasons that become obvious. So they put sensors all over Russia, uh, seismic sensors to test for earthquake-like activity, communication sensors to see if the Kremlin's talking to high command, is the high command talking to all their forces, that kind of stuff. All It's like the original version of AI. So all these sensors are all over Russia, and they all fed into a computer. And if the, all the conditions were met, the computer said, we have suffered a first strike, and at that point, the computer launched all remaining missiles, which is why it was called the dead hand. There's nobody on the switch. The computer just took everything and rolled it all in and fired the missiles. Now everything had to be met, so if you had an earthquake-like activity but the Kremlin's still talking, then it wasn't met. Uh, if the Kremlin quit talking for whatever reason, sunspots, but there's no earthquake activity, then it wasn't met. So all the things had to be met at the right time for the perimeter system to go for the dead hand to fire. Well, I read that, and I was like, that's – and it's still in Russia. They still have it. I'm like, you checked the batteries on that thing? (laughs) So I read that, and I was, like, fascinated by it, said, there's a story there. So in the book, I basically changed it. Putin has changed it from the dead hand, which is a first strike that initiates it, to he calls it the dead man's hand, meaning himself. If something happens to me, if I drink tea or fall out of a window, uh, then – This premier system is going to launch, and he's doing it for his own internal consumption. So anybody who wants to get rid of Putin, he's like, you get rid of me, you're all going down. It's his own version of MAD with his own internal competition. If you get rid of me, I'm starting a nuclear war, and Russia's doomed. Uh, And that's what he has. But on the other side, we have uh, partisans in Ukraine, they're saying the only way to end this war is to get rid of Putin. Uh, We're in stalemate. We're not going to be able to push him out. If we get rid of Putin, somebody will come in here, and they'll pull out voluntarily. They don't know about the dead man's hand. Uh, So every time we do counter-leadership targeting, uh, we always talk about regime change as if that's an in-state. It's not. There's something after that. There's always a second and third order effect to counter-leadership targeting, that if you don't think through, you're going to make a mess. And a good example is Libya. So Gaddafi's definitely a bad guy. He's definitely a jerk, uh, you know, a torturer and all that other kind of stuff. Arab Spring bubbles up and we say, we're going to get rid of Gaddafi, yay, like that's going to be the end state. Well, it's not the end state. There's always a second and third order effect. And the second or, second order effect was Benghazi. Our ambassador got murdered. They burned down the annex. They burned down the consulate. Uh, third order effect. They looted all the armories. Terrorists went running all over the world with uh, stuff that Gaddafi used to have in their lock and key. And they killed a bunch of special forces soldiers in Niger using those same weapons. So I kind of wanted to show there's a dilemma here going on with Pike because he's he would really like to help the partisans get rid of Putin, but now he's kind of feeling like i got to protect Putin from the partisans because they, they're going to start World War III.
0: The partisans, you called them the wolves. I thought yeah. that was a great name for them. So the wolves want to, as you say, eliminate Putin. Um, but we've introduced another character who is very close to Putin and aid, and he's the guy that has the dead man switch.
1: Yeah, he's the head of the National Guard. so he's Right. The one, yeah. But he's conflicted. Yeah, well, he's he thought the whole thing. So when when Putin has his four horsemen, he gives out the devices that'll launch these missiles to four people and they don't know who they are. So they don't know who the other three are. Right. They don't know who the other people are. So he's got it but he knows there's three other ones but he doesn't know who they are. Somebody's got it and only one of them is needed for initiation. Uh, And he, when it first happened it was kind of like, this is really cool. I've been selected and this is a power broker thing. I'm one of the four horsemen. Everybody kind of knows it. And I can get away with what I do, and then as it co- starts to come close to fruition, he's like, "Well, this is they're going to nuke Russia." He's crazy. That, that, do I really want to be the guy that presses the button and causes World War III? So he starts having second. So Was he?
0: Did he take into account that the prevailing winds blow east? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's one of the things. You know, if if in Western Russia they send up stuff, it's really going to it's going to blow that way across Russia. It's not going to turn around and blow across the Atlantic. I mean, eventually, yep. you know, but um, I've always thought that that was something, you know, I wondered if they even considered. The other question, and you've already raised it, does anybody know if their nuclear arsenal is still actually going to work? It's so old. Well,
1: they do. The missiles I use in here, we actually, believe it or not, the NATO code name is the Satan missile. Uh, and it's the largest ICBM uh, in the world. It's actually the Satan II. Uh, and it's brand new. And they've got four of them online right now. So, yeah, those things work. They've launched them. I don't know about the older missiles they have in their submarine fleet and all that, but the Satan II is the largest intercontinental ballistic missile. I can't remember the number. It's got like uh, 14 or 15 different Merv warheads in it. So it's like 15 nuclear missiles once it gets over. All of those can be independently targeted, and each one of those things has you know 15 nukes in it when it comes. And that's a brand-new missile. So, yeah, I'm sure that thing works. For them. Yeah.
0: Right. So if you were able to, like, destroy it midair, would they all go off and it wouldn't really matter whether it hit a target or not?
1: Sure. If you can destroy it when it's going hypersonic, we, we don't have anything that can compete with that. I mean, we have missiles that will do the same thing theirs do, but we don't have anything that will knock it out. A hypersonic missile that's got an uh, um, artificial intelligence flight pattern so it doesn't just do this, right. it, when it gets at the top of its ballistic arc, it then starts doing this. To get down and it'll evade anything we've got. We have the same thing. We can do the same thing to them, but uh, it's, everything's a countermeasure, so it's always more expensive to stop the thing than it is to, uh, um, so like armor system tanks, uh, you've got tanks they are super expensive and they have a lot of armor and then we have a reactive armor and we've got all this stuff, so anytime you you spend ten dollars to uh, build the armor system up, it costs you a dollar to defeat it. Uh, you see that with the drones, commercial drones right now. Uh, in Ukraine, are all over the place. The drone costs – I mean, at the outside, it's $10,000 drone. We're knocking them down with a $2 million missile. Uh, and each time they, they can figure out I can get away from that missile, I'll, it'll cost me another 5 bucks For me to defeat them again, it'll cost me another 500 bucks. It's always kind of – trying to defeat that stuff is more expensive than it is to evade it.
0: Have any of you ever been stalked by a drone? Well, when we get to, to Sweden, I have been. <laughs> um, and um, we'll talk about that. So, um, so we have the wolves who are one component of the story, and mm-hmm. they want to obviously move towards Moscow and take out Putin. Then we have the task force, who what what is their mission? What is their actual mission?
1: They get pulled in for they the uh, so Sweden is trying to join NATO in the book. In real world, you know, they were right. doing the same thing. And Putin wants to stop that. And he's done a lot of bad things to prevent um, uh, Sweden from joining. So there's people that have burned Korans outside of the uh, Turkish embassy in Sweden, which obviously gets Turkey all fired up. Those guys are paid by Putin. They're out there precisely to keep this thing from going. And uh, they get wind. They're trying to assassinate the guy that's in charge of the diplomacy with with Turkey. If we just put a bullet in his head, they'll have to start over. They know it won't be the end of it, but at least it'll delay it for two years or whatever. And uh, they get wind of that. And so Pike's now tasked to protect that guy. But it's
0: a Turkish guy, but then it's also a Swedish guy. I'm trying to remember, yeah. there are two of them.
1: Yeah, they're, they're sent, to, the target is a Swedish guy. Right. Uh, and so they want to protect the Swede from getting shot, basically. Is
0: the Turkish guy
1: expendable? No, well, the, from the threat matrix they have, that the Turkish guy isn't in a gun site, it's just a Swedish guy. Right. So they're going to protect him.
0: And this is early in the book, so actually, that doesn't work.
1: No, Turkish yeah. guy is expendable.
0: Right, as it all, <laughs> as it all turns out, right. Um, so, in other words, where they're heading for is not, you know, not the Ukraine, not Moscow, but the task force is actually heading to Sweden.
1: Right, yeah. So he's got two missions. That, so Putin gets wind of uh, – there's a GRU element. It's not this confusing, I swear. So the GRU elements leveraging the wolves to kill Putin – They want to get rid of Putin, too. They just think that Putin's a bad, he's going to hurt Russia. He is going to, you know, everything he's doing is wrong for Russia. The sanctions are starting to bite. And they're kind of pulling a, a, you know, high command trying to get rid of Hitler type thing. And they leverage the wills to do it. And Putin gets wind of that. So he's got two missions for the National Guard guy. Number one, kill that guy from Sweden uh, so NATO doesn't, he can't join NATO. Number two, figure out who these traitors are that I've heard about. They're somewhere. Find them. Uh, and he, so he's got a, two teams. One team's going to Sweden, one's going to Copenhagen.
0: Right. And so the task force is going to meet the team. Yeah, task force for doesn't know anything
1: about the one in Copenhagen. They're just going to Sweden to protect that guy, which is why Pike didn't want it, because they have a mission set. Well, like I was saying earlier, they have a charter. We're not going to do A, B, C and D. And, you know, protecting a Swedish diplomat is not in the task force charter. There's nothing to do with terrorism. That's not his mission set.
0: So, off they go to Sweden. Now, you love to do on-the-ground research, right? Yeah. So I'm going to assume that you actually went to Sweden.
1: Yes, all over Sweden. All over. So all the
0: runestones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which I love the runestones. But let's talk about the Vasa Museum, which is one of my (laughs) absolute favorite things. Have any of you actually been to Stockholm and been to the Vasa? So you know how fabulous it is, right? So tell us the story. I can do it, but it's better if you do it.
1: Yeah, so I actually wasn't going to use the Vasa Museum. We had something that fell through. And uh, we were in Gamla Stan, which is pretty close. You can walk basically down the uh, boardwalk. Gamla Stan is the, is the old, old
0: town. town, is the ancient part of Sweden.
1: And we, uh, we went to the museum. The Navassa is a uh, it's back in the day of sail. The Sweden spent bazillions of dollars. It was the finest warship ever built, greatest thing in, on God's green earth. They were so proud of it, and they launched it from Sweden, from Stockholm, out in the water, and it went about 100 meters and sank killed all aboard right. so they actually had hired a dutchman this was in the
0: days if you this is the 16th 17th century yeah. 16th century i think it is and if you pay any attention to baltic politics at that time sweden was the most is the biggest power and um so they they hired a dutch guy to come in and if you've seen pictures of like columbus's ship you know that they were very tall right and, and narrow So and they had a a whole lot of like fancy quarters at the back for the for the captain and the halibut. So the Dutch guy came and in order to build like this fabulous warship, he made it extra tall, but he didn't make it extra wide. And so what happened was when it actually hit the water, it just rolled over, right? I mean,
1: and it killed everybody on board. It's kind of funny. Yeah, they all drowned right there. Everybody, because it was a big deal in Sweden yeah. at the time. They were all on shore waving their flags, right. and look, there's we're so powerful, and it went boop. Just rolled well, the, right the, over. It sank into the silt, and it stayed there forever until the um, somebody found it, scuba diving or whatever. They found it sonar, and they decided to pull it out of the silt hole. and they did. And it's completely, it's the whole ship is inside this museum that they pulled out of the ground. Um, and uh, I actually, do you guys know who Jim Gaffigan is? he has a joke about this. It's one of his specials. He talks about this, and I didn't know at the time, but I went in there, and when I read the story. I'm like, this is the Jim Gaffigan boat, <laughs> and uh, once I was in the museum, if you've been in the museum, it's very dark. Uh, illumination is really uh, kind of mood lighting, I'd call it, and there's passages everywhere, and I was like, man, I could kill somebody in here, and so I started took up a lot of pictures, and I ended up Doing that very thing inside the museum. Do that <laughs> very thing.
0: So one of the things, and if you ever read about the Mary Rose, the Henry VIII wooden warship, when they brought it up, what they've learned is that if the wood's been in the water that long, they have to keep it wet. If they let it dry out, it's gone. So among other things in the Vasa, they have to actually yeah. keep
1: the ship wet, right? Yeah, and they have they actually have all this. They've found a bunch of because when they pulled the boat up, the skeletons were still in there. Right, and they have them all laid out. You know, this is. Boatsman's Mate Bill Smith, and here's his bones, uh, and all the their way jewelry, and all that other good stuff.
0: It's really a fabulous museum if you're at all interested in, you know, ships yes. and ship warfare and everything. It's one of the most interesting. My husband and I spent an entire day there. We were just fascinated. And with actually,
1: it. right outside the museum, which is also in the book, there's a bunch of trails that run around this. It's a, uh, it's not an island, it's a peninsula, but there's a right. bunch of trails that run around, and there's a cemetery right behind it. Um, Elaine and I were walking around, and I'm like, holy moly, you go up top of a hill, looks like an old uh, uh, English cemetery with a big church at the end of it and a bunch of old tombstones. Uh, And I was like, man, this is getting better and better. Taking pictures of that, all the trails and everything, and I ended up using that whole area.
0: And then, just to punctuate it, this Stockholm or the Swedish Museum of Modern Art is right there too. And it's built like a bunker, right? Now I've been through that as I spent a lot of time in Stockholm. So that's where I got stuck by a drone. So the Gamla Stamm is the old city of Stockholm. And some of you may have heard of Uppsala, which is a Swedish museum. And that's where, I'm trying to remember his name, the guy that um, came up with a genus for all the plants. I can't. It'll come to me. But anyway, the guy that determined how we talk about plants and everything, he was at Uppsala and there's a garden there for him. Um, but it was also an old Viking thing and they're old Viking burial mounds. But you can walk from Uppsala to Stockholm from one really old city to another one. And the time the day that we were there doing that, I loved it. All the suites go on holiday in August and the only restaurant in Stockholm that was open was Greek. I mean, all the Swedes were in Greece. Chinese and Christmas. I know, right, but there they were. But anyway, as we were walking over, there's a bridge near where the Nobel Prize stuff is done and all. There's a hotel there, and there's a bridge that goes across to the old town. And so we're walking on the bridge, and we kept hearing this weird noise. So we looked up, and there was this huge black drone right over us. And I, I... we finally figured out where the guy was he was on some peninsula looking at us and i have no idea what he was actually doing but it was the creepiest thing and it's quite noisy you know yeah. a, a drone that size so you could hear it it was like some gigantic bird or drug or bug that was going to come down and get you and it took us a while to figure out it was a drone and then it took us a while to figure out where the guy was and it you know it's like a, a game game thing you mm-hmm. know that that he was using it was and i've never known what happened i mean eventually we walked <laughs> over the bridge and and ditched it but you know i thought how awful it would be if a drone was really targeting
1: you yeah well that's what they're doing now well no, I, I pioneered know. that in american no what even that five books ago what the drone thing yeah, yeah suicide drone actually i read the acknowledgments the other day and i was like this hasn't happened yet but promise you it's gonna and i'm like Got i'm it. a genius you are a genius. The other
0: thing I think that's great about drones, if you're watching any of the, you know, gazillion things that are streaming, is the photography in, in you know, various yeah. TVs. Te- is fabulous now, yeah, you know. Especially I, the
1: racing drones. When
0: yeah, but I mean, you know, there's a whole French series I've watched forever. I have seen more friends <laughs> on this TV thing through drones than I ever saw, and you can't even get that perspective. You know, right. if you're not, wasn't it the Gray Man, Mark's book that had Had a ton of notes. There was. Absolutely. Yes. You yeah. know, Mark Rainey will be here on February 20th, and Brad is coming back. So it'll be Brad I and lived Mark.
1: I I just left Mark in Memphis, and so we agreed to it.
0: Right. It's <laughs> a really funny story. <laughs> Actually, Mark's publicist, for some reason, imagined that Brad was coming, so he advertised the whole thing, and yeah. then he wrote to me, and he said, did I imagine that Brad was
1: coming? Because I saw his tour <laughs> card, and says, in conversation with Brad Taylor, and right. I was like. First, I've heard of that. (laughs) So So anyway, I said, "You know, I'm on your tour card. What's going on with this?" And he was like, "Uh, "I thought you were coming."
0: (laughs) Right. So anyway, I said, "You did imagine it." Brad's not coming, so they redid it and they sent it out. (laughs) Now Brad is coming. I saw him
1: yesterday in Memphis. I spent the night at his house, and I said, "I'm willing to come." I, (laughs) you know, I just somebody needs to tell (laughs) me.
0: Right. Too funny. But anyway, that that gray man. And that reminds me, did Mark tell you is there going to be a sequel to the gray man? Uh,
1: We never talked about it. I don't know.
0: Oh, so that'll be something we can ask yeah. Mark because I—it was uh, there was some, as I said, gorgeous photography yeah. in it. All right, so back to the task force. So Jennifer and Pike arrive in Stockholm with what? What backup besides the two of them?
1: They, well, they've got—they're uh, uh, doing the rune tour for to. That's their cover, their, right? that
0: they're—they're there to look at runes. Yeah, which is
1: kind of actually a funny story too, because I always try to find. If you haven't read the books, Groyer Recovery Services is a cover organization for them to penetrate right. foreign areas because most of the archaeological stuff in the world that hasn't been actually pulled out of the ground is in ungoverned spaces. And what else is in ungoverned spaces? are a bunch of bad guys. That's why it's ungoverned. And so he uses this as a cover. And so I always usually look to find something. What would? Why would Groyer come in here? Right. And while I was in the United States doing the research, I said, oh, these runestones. That sounds like it. I've, in my head, I've got this vision of of Stonehenge, you know, something big, and so we, uh, we decided, I said, we're going to do the runestone tour, and you get in a car and you drive for about oh, six or seven days, no, it's about, you're driving for an hour and a half, two hours, and you eventually into some farmer's lot where there's cows and apple trees or whatever, and there's a runestone, and it's about this big, and it looks like a giant tombstone, but that's it, it's out there in the middle of nowhere. Then you go on the next rune stone. Same thing. You're driving forever, and there's another one out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and the main reason is because people, I guess, tore them down and used them for buildings and things. But So, right. so they now have these individual rune stones, and I'm like, I, that's not going to work. Nobody would ever believe that. You're going to fly a whole company over here to look at that one tombstone? Um, and so then they said, we're going to uh, go to the Council of Elders. This is where the Vikings in the 14th century would all gather together and If you stole a cow or were getting divorced or getting married, this is where the Council of Elders would decide your fate. And now I'm thinking, Stonehenge, finally, we're going to go to some kind of Stonehenge place. And we drive forever, and we go to this lake, and uh, they have a ring of stones around a fire pit. Uh, It's like eight stones, big slabs of rock going around. They've mowed it, and I'm like, this is the Girl Scout camp. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you guys are just, you laid these out like last year, and now you're telling me the Vikings used to be here. Uh, and so I was like, I can't use this. And so I ended up using it, I just made sure, I said that the task force came up to cover instead of Pike, and now Pike hates it because it's so stupid. But I did use it.
0: Bravo. Do you know that actually the best place to see all that is in Newfoundland?
1: Probably. It's a place
0: <laughs> called, um, what is it called, L'Anse, Lance- to remember it. You can only really get there by boat. I mean it's it's hard yeah, to I was do
1: just looking for anything.
0: Right. And it's a whole it's a whole Viking settlement with the long houses and the yes, runestones yeah. and all I the rest of it. Is. I love it. So, you know, that's another place you could yeah. possibly go if you really still want to see runestones. Going to
1: India next. I've You're already got that one figured out. It's going to India. For the next book. Ah. Research on it, so
0: so Detour here. Do you do you pick the story by where you want to go, or do you pick the story and then? No,
1: it's actually it depends on the book. Uh, sometimes it's a story in and of itself, a new story I've seen. For instance, this one. Um, obviously, Russia invaded Ukraine. That's so. I'm going. I'm not getting shot at in Ukraine, and I wrote Ghost of War, so I'm not going to go to jail in Russia. Right. Uh, I've already made fun of the Russians, and I had Wagner in a bunch of books. I'm like, I'm not setting foot in Russia uh so i had to figure out i was going to go and i figured the baltic states nordic ring right. that's where i'll go so that's how i ended up there other times uh, like no fortunate son elaine my wife said you know um she dictated i'm irish heritage and urban ireland let's go to ireland for the next book okay and i'm like what the hell am i going to write about there uh so i had to do a lot of research with the ira and things like that to make that fit
0: isn't it lucky that almost every place you want to go has something bad going on they always
1: do mm-hmm. yeah absolutely <laughs> So Always do you all
0: remember, I can't, I'm can't. i terrible on titles, but the book about Taiwan um, that Brad wrote?
1: American trader Ameri-
0: Right. Um, and, you know, I said, Joe, what an interesting update with the current election yeah, and right. all the rest of it. But, you know, in another six months, it could all go south again or sideways. And everybody's talking
1: about you know, artificial intelligence, deep fakes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're two years late. Right. I know.
0: Okay, so what else can we actually say about Dead
1: Man's Hand without so giving anything away? Uh, the well, the, the actual research for there was, we were talking about getting on the ground, and there's always things that, that I want to see that I'm done the research on the runestones being one. Um, Big fizzle for Elaine. Yeah, <laughs> there's always something that I have no idea is, is there. And Gomalistan a good example for Elaine. Where's Elaine? So Back there. <laughs> we're walking around Gomalistan at nighttime, going to get some food or whatever. And Gomalistan's super cool. Yeah, it really it's is. It's obviously been built before vehicles, so it's pedestrian only. Cobblestone streets, just like a movie set, except it's a real city that functions. And Elaine sees a sign for karaoke. She says, we're doing karaoke. In uh, Sweden. In Sweden. I was like, well, how is this going to work out? So we go into this Irish bar, and the karaoke's downstairs. And we go downstairs, and it's, uh, you can hear them t- caterwauling, screaming in English, horrible karaoke. And the bar, uh, they downstairs with these cellars, it looked like something out of Pirates of the Caribbean. It was really cool. Obviously been there since the 12th century or something. Uh, and I was like, man, I could use this in a book. And so she did her karaoke. They clapped for her. I have a video of it. And I took all those pictures, and I ended up using the book. But I never would have known that place existed. Uh, when we got to Finland, the, um, Finland was much more modern than uh, uh, the other areas we'd been in. We passed one old fort going into Helsinki. It's on an island all by itself. And it's uh, kind of a, an amalgamation of stuff because when they originally made it, you know, back when they were throwing spears, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger until I think the last time somebody was there was like the 19th century. So it spans from like the 15th century to the 19th century. Uh, you can only get there by a ferry, and I think I'm going to use it in the book. So I said, let's, you know, we plan out and we're going to get on the ferry and go, and we do. And I realize that this is logistically, it's just going to be too hard to. Get the task force and the bad guys and why are they on the boat and, you know, going back and forth on the ferry. So we do the tour anyway. We see the whole thing because I actually do like looking at old stuff. And um, the tour guide at the very end of it finishes up. And there's people that live on this island, not because of tourism. They just have lived there for generation after generation, and they still live there. There's a little big grocery store, school, all kinds of stuff. And um, he shows me on the map. The tour guide saying here's where we because we walked it all. He said, I'm going to show you where we were, and here's this bridge, and here's that bridge. And he finished up, and I'm just like, okay, you know, I'm done with this tour. Let's get out of here because I'm not going to use this. And uh, he says, oh, right over here is the secret tunnel. And I went, what do you mean, secret tunnel? And he says, well, they've dug a tunnel from here underneath the ocean to the mainland inside Finland. Uh, It's big enough for a car, and I was like, what in the world? What's that for? And he said, well, the people still live here, and the people do want modern technology. They want cable TV. They want Internet. They want power. They want all this stuff. So they ran it underneath the ocean in this tunnel. And they have, you know, when somebody has a heart attack, it used to be you had to get on a boat and drive as fast as you could on a boat. Well, now you can bring an ambulance in through the tunnel. And I said, where's that tunnel? That's the one thing I want to see. I don't care about these cannons. I don't care about anything else. And um, then he acted like he was giving me the keys to the kingdom or nuclear codes for Finland or something, he was like, oh, I wasn't really supposed to talk about it. It was kind of a secret and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, just show me where it is on the map, just point to where it starts. And he did. And uh, then I just went back and Googled, well, the company that built that tunnel, they're quite proud of it. I mean, here's a picture of a guy, here's the entrance, (laughs) here's what it looks like inside. (laughs) Here's where it comes out in Finland. And so I learned everything I wanted to know about the tunnel, but I never would have known that thing existed. If I hadn't got on the ground, stomped around with that tour guide.
0: Proving Uh, that actual on-the-ground research. Yeah, it does for me.
1: Right. It really does. For instance, this is for the next book. But, you know, every city, not every city, but a lot of cities have their own metro. But just because you have a metro, every metro is completely different. So, like in um, Japan, you know know how many Japanese you can get on a metro? One more. (laughs) That's how many. And they'll just keep cramming them in there. Uh, Switzerland's much more polite. They kind of stand there, you you first, you first, you first, and you'll miss the train as it goes away. Uh, But I was just in India, and I would never have thought about this, but I said, I got to go see how the metro works, because it's always different. Well, in India, they all have metal detectors like TSA airport stuff, which if I hadn't known that, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to use the metro in the book, and Pike's going to run in there with a weapon, and somebody's going to send me an email. He wouldn't make it on the train with a weapon, because there's nothing but metal detectors. So I always want to get on the ground to look at that. You don't really find that out in Google. If you Google Metro uh, in India, you'll get a time schedule and things like that. But nobody's going to say that they have security there. So that's why I like getting on the ground.
0: And you like to travel.
1: And I like travel. Yeah, that's true, too.
0: Which is all good. I love it. Um, Anything else you want to say about Dead Man's Head?
1: Uh, No. I think I covered everything. All right. I'm going to give the ending away.
0: So questions from the audience? Actually, I... uh, Hold on. I just thought of one great question before I ask you that. So we're working towards book 20, and that's a landmark thing. So have you worked ahead past India to figure out no. where you might go? No. I'm no?
1: Barely figuring it out It ought India. to be
0: something really spectacular there, yeah, right?
1: Hopefully, yeah. So for India, I mean, because the problem with writing, uh, um, when you write your first book, you've got, the universe is wide open. Right. But the minute you say somebody's got blonde hair, they've got blonde hair forever. And it gets harder and harder and harder to develop an uh, overarching plot that you have not done before. So at first or I Or that was, you
0: don't have to wrench your characters out of the way you have created them in order to make it work.
1: Well, for like – I mean like the big strategic problem set. So for this one, obviously, it's nuclear Armageddon. So I'm doing research on India, and I'm like, this is perfect. Pakistan's got nuclear weapons. India's got nuclear weapons. There's all this stuff going on with China. It's going to be some kind of nuclear thing. And I'm like, you just did that. So no, you can't do that. Now I have to figure something else out. So it's hard enough for me just to just do the next book. I certainly haven't thought to 20. Water resources. So the glacier are oh, melting. I've already figured it out. I'm not telling you what it is.
0: Ah. <laughs> I'm just mentioning it. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> sir. Oh. At, I always look at the jacket when I uh, look at your idea, and it says Charleston. And
2: then whenever I think of Charleston, I think of the pineapple.
1: Yeah, yeah. At Waterfront Park. Park. i uh, actually taken nobody to Fort Sumter. I've been there a bazillion times, um, but I've never taken anybody there. The, uh, usually we're going to a bar or something, but <laughs> most of the time that the people, they don't, the people that come visit me don't usually stay there long enough to go to Fort Sumter. I do get emails all the time from people. We're coming to Charleston, what should we see? And I will say, go to Fort Sumter, or if you want to be cheap, which Elaine and I do, there's a water taxi that goes across the harbor to the Yorktown, um, and it's like five bucks. And it's just a boat ride that's really cool. You see dolphins and everything. We take our mountain bikes, get on, go here, go back. The uh, the pineapple fountain is uh, uh, a lot of the stuff. Well, it's 18 books now, but there's a lot of Charleston in the books spread throughout them. I don't think I have the pineapple fountain. I do have the pineapple fountain, except it's in a short story. Exit fee. It's an exit fee. Why Charleston? Why am I living in Charleston? Uh, I have some history, Charleston. So my uh, uh, grandparents, my dad, my mom, everybody's from uh, Charleston. Uh, my I have a twin brother went to the Citadel. My sister went to College Charleston. My dad went to the Citadel. Uh, so I used to spend my summers there every year. You know, I grew up in Texas, and it'd be like get the kids out of here. You'd go spend a month in Charleston with my grandparents. So I just love it. I call it the Promise land. Anybody else? Lively crowd. I
2: have a question. Um, I was wondering, how do you come up with some of your plot lines? And the reason why I'm asking is uh, I'm a criminal defense attorney, and so oftentimes we have to present information to a judge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I struggle with, how do I get this judge who's heard literally 100 cases in front right. of me to pay attention to this thing? Clearly, you're very good at this, and so how do you actually come up with those plot lines and then what, would, what, type of, what books would you suggest that I read to get better at, at uh, designing some of those things?
1: Uh, I have never had any instruction in writing, so I'd be hesitant to recommend a book about how to write something. My instruction have all been authors. I've been a voracious reader. Okay. So I've read you know every genre there is. I went through a Stephen King phase, a Tolkien phase, a Ray Bradbury phase. Uh, I read crime thrillers now, John Sanford, um, Michael Connolly, Robert Crace. Uh, And I, the the main thing, I can write pretty well, you've got to, so in Army speak, you have strategic, operational, and tactical. So strategic is thermonuclear war, operational is they're going to operate in this area right here to stop A, B, C, and D, and tactical is the gunfight. Uh, And when I write all that, I try to make it, that there's not a lot of military speak, not a lot of, uh, I don't want that, Uh, but you have to have some of it in there. And my wife is my first reader, so she's the one that really kind of solves that problem for me. So when I write something, and it, whether it's a tactical gunfight or an operational uh, plan for what they're doing or the strategic level of the dead man's hand itself, uh, when she reads it and says, I don't understand what this means, I mean, to me it makes perfect sense. I know exactly what's going on. What do you mean you don't understand? Um, and if she doesn't understand it, then I know that uh, uh, I know know that you know, my buddies that are still operating, they would completely understand it. I know exactly what Brad's talking about here, but that's not who I'm writing for. And so she refines it so that I can get it fixed, that the average reader can read it. It's a lot of work is what it is. It's not, I mean, I'd like to say I could sit there and blaze this thing out, but it's a lot of rewriting and, and carving and carving with a scalpel, 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 scalpel. Do you, do you
2: put it in an outline format? Do you put up no. note cards? Like, what it, I've seen that
1: note card thing. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. How do you I, do to, I create what I call a framework. I mean, when I had my second book, your first book you have your entire life to write because nobody's purchased it. Uh, The the second book, you're on a deadline. And so my publisher said, I need, uh, my editor said uh, back then, way back when, uh, I need an outline for your next book, that's part of the contract. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. Not because I didn't want to, because I don't know how to do an outline. I can't do that. (laughs) I don't know how to do an outline. It'll take me half the year to figure out this outline while I should be writing. So I said, look, I'll give you a framework, which is the overarching threat, where it's at, um, and uh, I know the start point, the middle, maybe in the end point. But I don't do anything in between. I just start writing uh, and it, let it figure itself out as I go.
0: Was your question in part about how to keep this, I mean, how to make it fresh every time so the guy doesn't think he's just hearing yeah. the same thing over and over again? Because
2: you see, just like this, just like you're talking about, you see a lot of the same things. I mean, I was just in court today. Yeah. And you hear the same, you know, defense lawyer says this, prosecutor says this, this lawyer says this. And it seems like we repeat our these same things. Yeah. How do you
1: freshen it up? How do you keep it lively I make sure that uh, I, d- and I was, I mentioned this earlier about I couldn't use thermonuclear nuclear war for India. It goes all the way down to hand-to-hand fight scenes. Uh, I, as I'm reading the hand-to-hand fight scene, I'm like, you've got a triangle choke in three different fights. Come and do something different. You go back and rewrite that. Uh, Gunfights the same way. Uh, you, I don't want it the same thing. And, you know, some things, it, it's, if I was really going to be realistic, I try to find a different way to find the bad guys each time technologically wise there's billions of ways you can do it but in the real world the truth of the matter is it's a damn cell phone It's cell phone cell phone cell phone i mean that's smartphones i can do so much stuff with a smartphone to find somebody but then somebody's oh it's a little smartphone thing you just throw that out there because you're lazy and i want to write back and say uh... yeah you know every time i have a gunfight, they've got guns that's a so damn lazy you know i'm gonna have a rubber band gun next time so i uh... uh but so I always change it. I don't do the cell phone thing every time. I'm trying to figure out what other way I can do it, uh, which takes a lot of work, just to make sure it is fresh. So I don't get to email and cell phone again. You're lazy.
0: You know, I've often thought that if any of the bad guys, that need the their Kirk's actually read crime fiction, they would know to leave their cell phone at home.
1: Yeah. But somehow
0: or other. Well, it's it's all
1: still, they can figure out there's a lot of things they can do. It's amazing what they can do with a cell phone. Ask the guy who killed everybody in Idaho. He did leave his cell phone home. <laughs> Didn't do him a lot of good. Uh, there's a, a just a ton of things I can find for myself, and it's so scary. I, I'm almost to the point where I'm deleting all my apps because they're just spying on you relentlessly.
0: Uh, do you have a question from the audience? You're standing over there, so I feel like you must step out so we can see you. Well, yeah, actually, my question is, do you happen to r- recall the Jim Gaffigan joke?
1: It was about the uh, – he didn't – he may have said the actual name of the boat, but he does a whole setup. He's – He's doing a foreign – if you want to see it, it's the foreign uh, um, uh, tour he did. Okay. And he's telling people that when he was in Sweden, here's what he happened. He goes through this whole thing about this boat, and then he talks about it sinking. It's hilarious. and I, But I never really paid any attention to it because I'm never going to Sweden. Well, then I'm in Sweden, and I'm like, this is the Jim Gaffigan boat. <laughs> And it, he did a whole joke about it. It was really oh, funny. That's awesome. Okay,
0: uh, Jordan would like to know, um, other than Pike and Jennifer, who are your f- other favorite
1: characters to write? And also, are there any shows or movies in the works? Uh, f- for the answer to the first part, would probably be uh, Aaron and Shoshana. They're not in every single book, but they come back quite often. They're the most fun to write. Uh, as far as the movies, that uh, I have no idea. I get nibbles all the time, and... I say the same answer every year. The, uh, you know, I get, there's three things I need to know. Number one, are you really making a movie, or, or are you just going to buy the book? Because a lot of times, that you know, they had Olympus Has Fallen and uh, uh, White House Down. Those movies came out within two months of each other, and the studios are kind of like, we got the same damn movie out here. So when someone wants to do, uh, um, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, we're doing a 10 pole Jason Bourne type thing with your books, well, they're going to buy every book to the left and right of me. So there's no competition when a movie comes out. And they have no intention of making a movie. They just want to lock the rights up. So the first thing is, are you really making a movie? Number two for me is, can you really make a movie? Because uh, people tell you all the time, you get all these, the uh, resume, the curriculum Vitae is just impressive as hell. I did Unforgiven and all this other kind of stuff. And you're like, I think he was the caterer. You know, <laughs> he literally worked on the movie, but I think he's the guy that served them hot dogs. So you're never sure, is this guy really that big a deal? Because they're all saying something, and I don't really know. And then the final thing is, are they going to be true to the ethos of the books? And I understand they have to change things. I have no problem with that. Uh, I mean, they're going to fix it to make a movie. But as long as they stay true to the ethos. And I've been kind of, uh, there's only been two times when I had a guy that I was like, okay, I think he's going to do it. One of them actually was the furthest along. And then Me Too hit, and he got hammered for sexual harassment. He was out of Hollywood. I was into that deal, Uh, and the other one just kind of fell through. It just goes in limbo. Uh, We were talking about The Gray Man earlier. I'm still Mark's thunder. Mark and I were debut authors about the same time, and um, he optioned The Gray Man in 2009, and that's how long it took for that thing to hit the screen. So I guess to make a long story longer, uh, no movies in the works. Plus,
0: it's so. been complicated by the rider strike and everything. Oh uh, so yeah, that's true too. There's that's a big. Although that's, now. they're
1: using that as an excuse for everything now. Everybody that I've been talking to like, "This writer strike's really hammered me." I'm like, "All right." <laughs>
0: um, is is it Amina or Amina? Going yeah. uh, to become a part of the task force anytime soon?
1: I don't know. That sh- she's causing me fits. Uh, for the uh, uh, the book I'm writing right now, book 19. Um, she's overseas doing foreign exchange student stuff, so whew, she's out. Uh, so if you haven't read the books, so uh, um she was, sp- she was in the book Daughter of War, and she was supposed to exit on Chapter 4, she's exiting stage right, and that's the end of that. And I give 100% to each individual book, and I never think about the repercussions. Some people consider and say, I'm going to drop this in this book, and five books from now I'll pull it back out. That's not how I operate, I write this book, best book ever. And I got to Chapter 4, and I liked her too much. So she took over the whole book. Well, then when you're writing the next book, you're like, well, N- Amina exists now. What am I going to do with her? She's there. She's a, a live, living person, and people are going to ask me, what happened to Amina? Uh, and I have not really figured out what I'm going to do with Amina. I'm still trying to figure that out. She won't be ignored. No, she won't, because <laughs> I don't want to get the nasty emails. <laughs> um, that's all I've got. Anybody else?
0: you're being so quiet No.
2: Oh. Um, I'm, I'm, really, I'm a really, really big fan of, of your books um,
1: so when you, when you do research do you kind of what kind of research do you need for your books or do you just kind of print in the file for your, for your research or? so I'll, what I'll usually do is I start out just reading a ton of books um, every book I can find on whatever I think is close, for this case it's pretty easy there's a lot of books out about Ukraine, there's a lot of books about Russia there's all kinds of books out there Uh, and then that will formulate what I'm thinking about, what I'm going to write about. Um, And then when I get on the ground, I just do a bunch of research on what I think I want to see, and then that's just nothing but pictures, and they're not any good pictures. I take a picture of uh, um, what I want to see all the way around, because there's nothing worse than getting back and you're saying, man, I really want to use this place. And then you realize you didn't take but one picture, and you can't find anything else. Uh, But I'll take pictures of everything outside, around it, um, so if I was going to use this store, I would take a picture of everything in here so I know what the floor plan is. Then I would go outside and take a picture of the street sign right next to it so I can find it on a map later. And then I'll take a picture of the intersection, the closest intersection. One of the things I didn't use in this book, but we were doing the runestone just driving around doing nothing. Um, we passed by uh, an airfield. Uh, it was obviously, uh, I mean, it was a dirt runway that had a windsock. That was about it. And I was like, holy moly, I can use that in the book. Uh, There's an airfield right here in the middle of nowhere. I can land a plane here. I wasn't sure how I was going to use it, but I knew I was going to use it. So I took a picture from the moving car of the airfield, but I have no idea where we are. I mean, we've been driving for hours. We're somewhere in the middle of Sweden. Uh, And as, as we went about two miles down the road, there was a bus stop. I took a picture of the bus stop. Then when I got back to the hotel room, I Googled the bus stop name. Boom, I found that. Well, now I can find, using satellite imagery, that airfield. So a lot of the pictures don't make sense to anybody, but they make sense to me. Uh, and then when I get home, I'm, well, I start doing the writing process. And then if you look at my computer right now, there's probably literally 45 or 50 tabs that are open. Most of them are, there's a lot of Google Map tabs. There's a lot of uh, just all kinds of tabs. We, I'm, I'm writing about India, and so we just, uh, the Indians just whacked a guy in Canada, a Sikh separatist. Right. They tried to kill two people in America. So I've got all those articles up because it's fresh news so I can talk to them. And then the research just goes on and on as I'm writing.
0: So Patrick has another question. But, you know, it occurs to me that um, the ability to take photos on your phone
1: and use use Google,
0: well, whatever you're taking photos with, um, and Google Maps make just a gigantic difference. You would have had to write perhaps, you know, Yeah. All kinds of notes, and I mean, I have a
1: dedicated camera for it because the phone I can't zoom in. There's all kinds of things I can't do with a phone, uh, and people always say, "Leave," you know, like there's areas where you're not allowed to take pictures. No photos allowed. A good example is I put Christiana. Have you been to Christiana? It's this hippie culture, bunch of hippies. So I'm going to Christiana because it's, it's in really Copenhagen, cool. Copenhagen, right? Yeah, it's in Copenhagen, yeah. and it's basically an old army base in the 1970s. They closed the Army base down, and they just, uh, you know, Copenhagen, they said, we're not going to use this Army base anymore, but it still existed. It's just a bunch of abandoned barracks. Well, a bunch of hippies moved in, planted a flag, and said, this is a free state of Christiana, and they've never left. They're there right now, and they sell drugs everywhere. Uh, They have signs that say, don't take any pictures, which is ridiculous. It's like everybody's, I mean, they're and they all look like stray cats. They're just kind of laying there all out in the sun. And uh, I was like, I'm definitely using this because if you – I do not check anybody's passports. If I want to infiltrate a bunch of Russians, I'd do it through that area. Sure. So I ended up using it. But if there's areas that say, you know, I'm not allowed to take pictures, they'll see you with a cell phone. But if you put a GoPro on your belt and, and turn the lights off, I can walk wherever I'm going, and nobody knows I'm videoing the whole thing. And then when I get back, I just take a picture out, cut it out, and I got this.
0: Do you ever actually go anywhere just for fun?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, actually, when you go somewhere for fun, it ends up making it in a book. So,
0: oh the karaoke bar. I forgot. You already well, told the way us we that. Well, we went
1: to Positano for vacation. Yeah. And that ended up being honeymoon heist for the last short story I wrote. It was all Positano because <laughs> <laughs> we were there running around. So, I used got it. it.
0: Patrick, you have another question?
1: But then you can write it off, right? You damn right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see here. Okay, uh Jordan has another question. Was your research for this book your favorite or is it still The Widow's Strike? I think I remember that right.
1: Yeah, the uh this one, I, don't, I think that one that was, would be our favorite would be Daughters of War, because we went all over Nice and Switzerland, uh, although no fortune son, that's Ireland. What would you say? Um, she loves Switzerland. Uh, so the Widow Strike was a lot. We did a ton of stuff for the Widow Strike. We went to like six countries at one time. Um, so I enjoyed that experience. But as far as having more fun, it would, would probably be uh, daughter of War, because we'd Got to run around Switzerland. (laughs) All right. Well, thank. Oh, wait, John, you have a question. Yay.
2: Brad, uh, go back to the movie deal again. If it met all three of your points,
1: and maybe I should ask your wife rather than you, (laughs) who who would you see? What actor could you see playing? Oh, you'll get the same answer from her. We don't (laughs) answer that question. (laughs) 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 I learned early on, way back in 2011. When you're reading the book, it's, it's. you're the reader. You have your idea of what Pike should, who should play him. That's just because I wrote the book doesn't make me right. And I answered that question on uh, social media one time, and then everybody started attacking everybody else, and you're an idiot, that's the wrong one. No, you're an idiot. No. And then when I weighed in, they said, well, he's the author, and he said this. He told you you're an idiot, and it just got vicious. Social media just was, fell apart, and I, I was like, never answering that question again. A very wise decision. She'll say the same thing. <laughs> We both made a pact. Remember to answer that question.
0: Right. Well, it's great to see Brad again, even if it's only once a year now and not twice a year. So let's give him a round of applause for coming. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.